Just before we start, don't forget, John and I are live on stage. The red velvet seats, I can see them now, John, Ooh. of the Olympia, <laughs> the 5th of March. David McQuinion's podcast, live. Get your tickets at ticketmaster.ie. See you there. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is podcast time. And this week, we're going to be talking all about cryptocurrencies. Because over the last while, yourselves, ourselves, many, many people who worry about economics, about monetary policy, about money, what is money, what are its properties, what does it do, have been kind of flummoxed by and certainly entertained, surprised, and made curious by Bitcoin and by cryptocurrencies in general. Because some people say it's going to change the world. Other people say it's nothing more than a Ponzi scheme. We don't really know. So we decided to maybe have one of the foremost experts on crypto and Bitcoin, Michael Saylor, on the show. Michael Saylor is one of the biggest individual positions in Bitcoin. He has been very, very much at the forefront of explaining Bitcoin to the world. And I'm delighted he's going to be on the show. But surprisingly, and we're all a bit perplexed as to what it is. You know, I remember a couple of weeks ago, I said on the show, Bitcoin is something, but I don't think it's money. Surprisingly for me, Michael Saylor did say this. Bitcoin is not competing with the dollar. It's not a currency. This is a very important point. It is not a currency. So let's sit back and listen to Michael Saylor talking about what Bitcoin is, and then make up your own mind. Michael Saylor, how are you? And welcome to the podcast. I'm awesome. This is my first Irish podcast. I'm looking forward to it. Great stuff. Great stuff. Well, listen, Michael, just before we start, tell us what is Bitcoin? What is Bitcoin? Yeah. Well, Bitcoin is the digital transformation of property, money, and energy. These are such you know, they're kind of profound ideas because no one ever thought of energy being digitally transformed. What is digital energy? What is digital property? Can I stop you there? Because I think it's fascinating yeah. because we're talking about money. And I've always thought as an economist, so I'm trained as an economist, a central banker, worked in markets, all that stuff. It always struck me that money, what makes money so fascinating for me 
is it actually is an energy. It's an energetic technology that changes us, that has been invented by us, that only exists in the human world. And this is why I'm so fascinated by money. Money is technology for moving energy through time and space. And this is a big idea. If money is energy, then, and it is, like I, I have a billion dollars, I can buy a billion dollars of electricity with it, I can buy a billion dollars of horsepower, I can convert it into labor, I can convert it into, into products and you know, into matter, I can convert the property back into money. So money is technology through, for, for moving energy through time and space. But the more important issue, Dave, is we don't have a good way to move a billion dollars of energy through time from now to 100 years from now. That's the profound challenge the human race has faced. Moving energy through space is merely inconvenient and inefficient, very inefficient. But moving energy through time is impossible until we actually invented Bitcoin. And with Bitcoin, we finally have a network to move energy through time and space in a thermodynamically sound fashion with de minimis power loss. That is the profound invention. Explain to me, Michael, moving energy through time. So space, I get it. And I get, you. we can say, the solution for Bitcoin and other cryptos, and we come on to this, is the problem is in a sclerotic banking system, which is based largely on fiat and largely on money that is rubber stamped by a state. And so basically what we have is an inefficient middle guy called the banking system. And every now and then the banking system starts to fail and we print money to bail them out. And this is a larger and larger problem. I, I get all that, okay? And I get that's a problem that was waiting for a solution and that solution may well be crypto. This through time now, explain that to me. So let's say you have a million dollars and you want to leave it for your great, great grandchild. What do you do with the million dollars such that 50 years from now or 100 years from now, they've got something worth a million dollars today? You could say that matter is low-frequency energy. You could say that property is low-frequency money. I give you a million dollars. If you, if you hold a million dollars in dollars, let's say you hold it from 1900 to the year 2000. You're going to lose 98 to 99% of the economic purchasing power over 100 years. The actual monetary inflation rate in the Western world has been running almost 10% a year, every year, for 100 years. You can, you can correlate it to the S&P index. In the last two years, it's been running 20% or more. Now, the monetary inflation rate in the developing world, and in Argentina, in a, in a Venezuela, in a Lebanon, in a Turkey, sure, is, off is the running scale. It's off the scale. 30, 40, 50, 60% a year. So if you try to use a fiat currency to move money 100 years forward, you will, if you would use the best currency in the world in the 20th century, it was the dollar, you lost 98 or 99%. The house that I'm in right now cost $100,000 in 1930. It cost me $14 million less than 100 years later. Same house. You'll be, you'll be relieved to know the house I'm in doesn't cost us $14 million or anything close to it. But I get your point, right? Yeah. And it's really interesting because John and I were discussing, John, my partner in crime on the far side of the table here, who is a guru of all things, sound included. How are you, Michael? He was, we were discussing the hey. bond market. And, we were and it's interesting, behind you on your, in your house looks like a model of a Dutch 
ship from the yeah, it's late a, it's a, 17th century. It's a 19th century handmade model of a 17th century Dutch ship. Exactly. Yeah. So I was thinking there, and the Dutch faced this problem many, many years ago of how do we move money through space and through time? Because they were faced with this huge dilemma of how do we build our dikes to protect the country? Every village cannot afford to build a dike, but we know collectively we've got to do it. And they came up with the bond market, and they came up with perpetual bonds. And the most extraordinary thing is the Dutch managed to move through time. So basically what they did is they borrowed from the future, okay? Now, what you're talking about is not borrowing from the future, but it's lending to the future. So it's giving your descendants money from today. But yeah. do you see what I mean? That, that we have in the bond market a facility that allows us to borrow from the future. And we yeah. have in perpetual bonds an asset that allows us to do this. And the Dutch have been so brilliant at finance for so many years. They figured that out. Are you saying Bitcoin is moving us in that direction? Because I, I, I want to go broad before we go narrow, Michael. Are you saying sure. it's that type of thinking? Well, so if we look at all the properties, right, uh, currency is a money issued by the state. If the currency is zero inflation rate, then a currency derivative like a bond will hold value over time. As the inflation rate of the currency increases, the ability of the bond to hold value over time is undermined. If the, if the inflation rate is 8% and the bond yields 16%, then the bond will accrete 8% in purchasing power a year. It's simple math. If the inflation rate gets to 18% and the bond yields 0%, then the bond will lose 18% of its purchasing sure. power and per the year. Price, the price should go up and down. as Hence, sovereign debt is not a store of value if the interest rate on the sovereign debt is negative or less than the true inflation rate. The true inflation rate on the assets is always greater than the true inflation rate on the consumer goods. So whereas CPI might be running at 7% inflation, if the asset inflation rate is 20%, the bond's got to yield 20% the whole value. If the bond yields 2%, the CPI is 7 and the monetary inflation rate is 20, the bond's got a negative real yield and wealth value to minus 18%, and you're going to destroy half of your wealth within 36 so what, months. What we're talking about then is the age-old conflict between the debtor and the lender, right? So this, right. Is, this is part of money's also implicit conflict. We go all the way back to the Bible, because I think, Michael, it's really fascinating to look at these things. The Bible, Leviticus, these sort of Deuteronomy are full of ideas of debt forgiveness, because right. the ancients figured out that this is a huge conflict at the center of society. And as you're saying that Bitcoin is, a, is an iteration of that conflict, but it's on, the, it's on the asset holder side. Yeah, well, what I'm saying is that every society for 10,000 years always starts with its own currency, issues some kind of token, debases the token, and then they issue credit, you know, the king, the mayor, the whatever, sure, issues the whoever, some yeah. credit. And they always default on the credit. The currency collapses, the economy collapses, and it's happened 10,000 times. It's, it's an age-old idea. So the response of intelligent business or an, a family or any individual that wants to protect themselves from currency collapse, which is always ever-present around us, always, right? The most successful currency in the world is collapsing 99% over the course of 100 years. Every other currency is doing worse, okay? 
So the way you solve that is property. So I have to buy property, scarce art, land, a building, a company which generates cash flows, cattle, sheep, gold, silver, diamonds, some kind of property. Yeah. The world up until Bitcoin relied upon physical property. And the problem with physical property is it always gets stolen or seized or is centralized. You know, if you if you tried to hold your wealth in gold from 1900 to the year 2000, every country on earth, with perhaps the exception of Switzerland, stole it. The Brits stole it. The Americans stole it. The Germans stole it multiple times. The Japanese probably stole it two or three times. The Russians stole, would have stole it two or three times, right? There's nowhere you could have stored gold without having it stolen. Uh, the same is true with every other form of property in one shape or form. No, I absolutely take your point. Uh, but again, what I come back to is, let's say the, the Americans stole gold. If we take it, if we take like FDR says at a certain stage, look, we've got this massive, massive Great Depression. Yeah. It seems to us that the money in circulation uh, is disappearing because people are hoarding. How do I, how do I get money back into people's pockets to try and get the thing going? This gold standard, I can see that if I undertake to pay back every single cent on a fixed matter of gold, I can't expand my money supply. I can't get things going. So well, you know what? Screw it. We're going to come off gold, right? Let's, let's say that was his thought process. Liberating, in a way, the energy. See, when I come back to the energy thing, I'm always intrigued by this, like liberating the energy. Because if money is an energy, the more people who use it, the more energy we actually create and the more dynamic the economy. And all yeah. the time we're talking about the debt side of the balance sheet, but the asset side of the balance sheet, the stuff you bought with the debt, okay, with even the defaulted currency, even the, even the, as you say, the diminishing value, that is something of value, that is something of lasting significance, that is a technology that enables the other energies. So wh what I'm saying is to, if we try and think a little bit more laterally, maybe, it gives us a better sense of what money is and where Bitcoin lies there. Yeah, um, I guess... Uh if we need a money to last 100 years, right? If we can agree that fiat currencies aren't effective as money lasting 100 years. Uh, fiats work for moving money easily through space, but not as easily as, as Bitcoin, but better than bars of gold. So you've, so you've kind of half solved the through space problem. You haven't solved the through time problem. Again, so we're coming back to how are you going to leave money to your great, great, great grandchildren? You, if you give them a company, you've got to run the company for 100 years and compete. And most companies fail over 100 years. If you give them a building, you have to maintain the building for 100 years and it might get blown up. And it yeah, might, sure, it might or get appropriated by somebody or, or whatever. Right. So property has a maintenance cost. And there's the maintenance cost is paint it, maintain it, you know, deal with water damage. There's, an, there's also a maintenance cost in the form of insurance and tax. If you owned a million dollars of property in Florida, you pay 2% tax on it per year and you get reappraised up. So over 100 years, you would lose the property six times if you just calculate the cost of paying the property tax on it. But are we not talking, Michael, about a rich man's concerns? The vast majority of people in the world have no inheritance at a very significant amount of people so I I'm think just, it's everybody's concern because the vast majority of the people in the world want to live more than one year. 
If you wish to live more than one year of your life, then you need to have economic resources that will last more than 12 months. So if you think the life expectancy of the average person, you know, from today is 30 to 50 years, then everybody on earth needs to find a way to store economic energy for the 30 to 50 years. Otherwise, they're going to starve to death. I want to make a point. It's a very important point. If you're a type one, if you're a type one diabetic, you can't store organic energy in the form of flat fat. True, and so you true. will literally die within 12 months eating every single day. The inability to store energy over long periods of time is a death sentence. Property is economic energy stored over time. So the inability to store your economic energy in the form of a property or a, a perfected money is the same as an economic death sentence. You're, you're doomed to poverty, which means that maybe you could say this is elitist. It's not so elitist to say there's billions of people no. that have one week worth of money and after one week they're going to starve to death. So I think you really have to deal with the question of how do 8 billion people store economic energy if the currency is defective and if they can't acquire a perfected property that will last more than a few years. And that's why we're here right now. My point here is there are ways to solve the problem in the last 2,000 years. And the way you solve the problem is you buy tangible property. You know, in Turkey last month, there's somebody got arrested because they had 52 cars in a parking lot and they bought 52 cars as an inflation hedge. And the government thought that was inappropriate behavior. So they simply impounded the cars for hoarding, yeah. right? And it was a totally logical a, thing to do, actually. In any kind of hyperinflation environment, if you're holding a million dollars of currency, which is going to zero in the next 12 months, you would get out and you would buy toilet paper or cars or building or gold or art or anything tangible, food, guns, bullets, buy something which is not going to lose all of its value in the next X months. So property has been that solution. The problem with property is property has a maintenance cost. That's one problem. Property also has a tax bill every year, say 2%, 1%, half a percent. That's the second problem. The third problem is you can't decompose property into a million little pieces, ship it all around the world, and recompose the property. So property doesn't serve as money very well. It's hard to break off a tenth of your building and buy a car with a tenth of a building. Sure. Right? So it's a it's 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 a it's a structural problem as well as everything it's else. It's also it's also a problem to move property. So if you have property in Zimbabwe and the economy collapses, you can't move your building to another country, right? You can't, it's not portable. So what's the solution to that? Well, the, the, the best form of portable property in 10,000 years that a human race had was gold. And, you know, we use a bar of gold because it's this scarce, you know, hard to reproduce, hard to create, you know, material. The problem with gold is a network. If, if you create a, mon a monetary network based on the gold standard, the problem with gold is, number one, it's, it's not thermodynamically sound. For example, every year, gold miners create 2% more gold. So if you increase the supply of gold 2% a year for 100 years, you 
do the math and you realize that you lost 85% of the energy in the network because you're being inflated away. The, the ideal way to move money, if God created a network, God would create an immutable ledger in, you know, in magic space or in heaven. And God would create a, keep track of who owed what to whom and no one gets to cheat anybody. And we just start with a hundred million, you know, God coins, okay. if you will. And everybody trusts it and everybody knows it and no one can cheat it. And that way, if I give you 10, you give me back 10, no one gets taken advantage sure. of. And if, and, and if we do a deal in 50 years time, the deal stands and the value stands. So no, I, The I, problem I, I with get- gold coins is that the gold coin will only be worth one-tenth as much in, in 100 years or in 50 years as it is today. And the other problem is I can't easily move them around. I want to move a billion dollars of gold from here to Tokyo. It takes three months and $5 million. I can't decompose it and recompose it. So inevitably with gold, you end up creating a second layer of paper gold or derivatives. And sure. that second yeah. layer, it becomes a fiat currency, which eventually is hypothecated and corrupted. And so the gold was the best idea, but it wasn't, it was an imperfect idea for a monetary network. Bitcoin is the is kind of the, the closest approximation to that perfect monetary system because it's 21 million Bitcoin. It is sitting in cyberspace. It's universally transparent. It is incorruptible because nobody on earth can figure out how they can mess with that ledger. And so if you want to hold the money for 100 years and your choice is gold or Bitcoin, and that's pretty much the only choice for a bearer, non-sovereign store of value asset right now, then you can see that Bitcoin would hold that energy with no power loss and move it through time and space with no power loss. Gold has, a you know, if you move the gold once a year, you would have no gold left after 100 years. And if you held it for 100 years and didn't move it, you'd probably have it seized. But if it wasn't seized, you would lose 90% of the value because of the thermodynamic bleeding in the form of gold mining. And that's, that's why that doesn't work. And it also, it, also, it also defeats the whole point of money, right? That's, it's, 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 like, it's like fine art. You know, at some stage, you know, if all the fine art in the world is hoarded and not seen, well, what's the bloody point? which is another thing. But, you know, the thing about money, what gives money its profound economic energy, and this is a weird thing, is its usage, right? The more it's used, the more energy it gives us. And this is what makes it quite different to understand to a lot of assets, because a lot of assets are based on strictly constrained supply. And that's limited supply makes them more valuable. But in fact, what makes money more valuable is the fact that it's used all the time, its velocity. And this is one of the dilemmas that people have with Bitcoin is how do you create the same velocity of money with something which has got, as you said, a fixed standard? It fixes, it, it solves your time and space dilemma, but does it actually create the energy needed for the here and now economy? So money is two things. It's property and it's also currency. The property is the store of value. The currency is the medium of exchange. So today, what you have is you have in the U.S., the U.S. dollar flourishing as the world's reserve currency. But 
every wealthy American and every wealthy institution in America doesn't hold the U.S. dollar as its principal asset on yeah, its balance sheet. Yeah, I'm with sheet. you there. It actually holds property in the form of companies or buildings or, or something else. So what I think you'll see is in countries that don't respect property rights, well, Bitcoin's not going to be very popular there. In countries that respect property rights, Bitcoin is not competing with the dollar. It's not a currency. This is a very important point. It is not a currency. The definition of a currency is I can use it as a medium of exchange without a taxable event. Yep. Okay, so the dollar is a currency. Bitcoin is designated as property by the IRS in the US, and it's property pretty much everywhere in the Western world, which means that when I transfer it to you, I have to calculate the capital gain or capital loss, and it is a taxable event. So property is low frequency money. You're not going to want to transfer it. What you're going to do is you're going to finance it. Like I own a billion dollars of real estate in New York City. I don't break off a thousandth of the building to pay for my rent or pay for my car. What I do is I go to a bank. I pledge the building. Yeah, if I you, take you, out a million dollar. Whatever. Are you saying and, then, for Michael, that cryptocurrency then it's kind of a misnomer? Because yeah, it's I, a mistake. Yeah, it's, it's a mistake. A, it's, a, it's a mistake. That's an, and, that's and a lot of people make a cognitive error. It's very important educational. It is, it is point, really Dave, important. It is really important. Because if you say to a politician, what do you think about Bitcoin as cryptocurrency? They say, no, I like the pound. No, I like the dollar. Or the euro But if you case, said yeah. to them, Bitcoin is crypto property, what's that mean? Well, it's an alternative to a middle-class person that has to buy a second house to rent out on Airbnb this or is, own this a Bitcoin. Is a, you see, this is a much more interesting thing because sometimes, you know, as you know, that you know, language matters because language is our way, another technology is our way of forming ideas in our head, right? So when you say a currency, then I'm thinking, okay, the Bitcoin, I have the euro in my back pocket. I know I go to the bar, I pay for a pint of Guinness. That works, okay? Uh, but I think now it's fascinating because you're saying, hold on a second, it's crypto property. And that's yeah. what we're talking about. And that's, that's, that's where we should be zeroing in in terms of our cognitive ability to digest this stuff. Cryptocurrency is the worst term because legally it's not a currency. Crypto money is a intellectual term, but the problem is most people equate money with currency, and so they sure. come down to that yeah. same cognitive trap. Crypto property is much better because now I say to you, okay, you're a middle-class family. Are you going to invest your life savings in uh, the stock index or in a second rental property or in gold or in art or in land? What, what is your property investment strategy and well, the answer is Bitcoin is digital property. And the beauty of digital property is, wouldn't it, like, wouldn't it be great if instead of buying a second home in Ireland that you Airbnb out to people that are tourists traveling to Ireland, you actually had a digital second home, a Bitcoin, and you could rent that out to people in Moscow or Beijing or London or Paris or New York or San Francisco that don't even come to Ireland. Right, you, you've got a yield generating property. The problem with your real property is, you know, the people that rent it might trash it. You know, an earthquake. You know, there will be rain damage. There's tax on it, and when people stop traveling to Ireland, you can't rent it out. So it's a very high maintenance property. 
what I'm going to do, because, you know, what I yeah. find fascinating, Michael, is you and I are knocking this around and we're doing history, we're doing a bit of engineering, we're doing a bit of philosophy, a bit of politics, a lot of economics too. But when when we talk crypto, it generates a whole other bunch and we talk of questions. And I just threw this out on Twitter that, you know, we, we have the opportunity to talk to you. And I said, if you have any questions, if Michael doesn't mind, I might throw them to him. I just just from Twitter this morning, I just if you have a few minutes. Yeah, sure. Uh, go ahead. I get the time. First question is, how does crypto become mainstream? Does it need practical uses? That's the first one. I'll give you a few of these and we can we can then take them in, in, in turn. Yeah. Second one is, El Salvador is getting heat at the moment to abandon Bitcoin by the IMF as legal tender. How is this going so far for them? Will they crack under pressure? Also, the thing is, what's the most exciting project for you in the crypto space? Let's take those three and then we'll have a look. Sure. Let's start with the first one. The mainstream one, yeah. So Bitcoin is crypto property. There's $100 trillion in bonds. It makes no sense for a family or a corporation to hold bonds as, a, as an investment because they yield 2% interest and the inflation rate is 15, 20, 30, 50%. So replacing some bonds in your portfolio is one way they become mainstream. There's $250 trillion worth of real estate, commercial real estate, residence, property. So as Bitcoin replaces gold, as $10 trillion of gold, as it replaces real estate, as it replaces bonds, and then there's $100 trillion worth of equities, and a lot of people invest in equities as a store of value. You know, like my retired father, he's invested in equity portfolio. Why? Because the savings account's destroyed, because bonds as a store of value are destroyed. So what we have is a world where the money is broken. There is no store of value asset that I can buy that doesn't come with credit risk or doesn't come with execution risk. And we've the money's been broken so long, Dave, that people forget that you know a society that is healthy would give a retiree the ability to invest their life savings. It used to be, if you roll the clock back, you could take your life savings, put it in a bank account, and get five or six percent interest. Yeah, and not that long ago, actually. Right, and so the idea of being able to, like, if you work for thirty years and you saved a lot of money, why can't you live off the money that you saved for the rest of your life? The reason is because the store of value are broken. So what happens is everybody is stampeded into risk assets and you have to bet on Peloton or GameStop or Guess. So uh, the mainstream application of crypto is it's, it's a savings account in cyberspace uh, for people that have neither the means nor the wherewithal or, or, the, or the inclination to run their own hedge fund. <laughs> Okay. And okay, that's, how, that's, how big that's is that? Very good answer. That's a good answer. It's a hundred trillion dollar opportunity just to give the mainstream investor or corporation the ability to save their money without losing it in the in the face of broken stores of value. So that that's how it goes. That's how, that's how it goes. So so the El Salvador questions taking a lot of heat at the moment. How do you think it's going for them? Yeah, the reason that El Salvador's got a lot of friction is because they're characterizing it as currency. Instead and of property. property. Okay. If, if, if they had simply said, uh, we're going to use the dollar as a medium of exchange, and then we're going to use Bitcoin as a store of value, and Bitcoin is, is property and the dollar is currency, you would have none of those sparks flying around. And they would, what the world wants, 
the world wants to move crypto dollars at the speed of light as, as your checking account, and they want to keep Bitcoin as your savings account. I hear you. Right? Okay. I mean, everybody in the world wants a strong property to hold for 30 years, and they want a strong currency to, to hold use for, for every 30 seconds. Yeah. Thir- yeah, 30 weeks, 30 days. And so the entire world would shift to dollars and Bitcoin if they could move them on on crypto rails at the speed of light. The problem is a lot of people can't figure out how to do that yet. And still, a lot of people in the world, they misunderstand what, what Bitcoin is. And as soon as you understand that money, everybody needs two things. They need a, a currency that they can use to buy a cup of coffee tomorrow. And the world's best currency is the dollar. And and 8 billion people on this planet, Dave, would all switch to the dollar tomorrow oh, yeah. if, if they could. And, uh, then the, and then the world needs a property to hold their, their life savings for the next 30 years so that it won't be debased. You can't use the currency because the currency is losing 10 to 20% yeah, of its no, value really a year. I'm really glad that you've made that distinction between the cryptocurrencies. Because I really do think your crypto property, then we're talking about two distinct concepts, which people can get their head around very, very easily. It's once you start calling the currency, then you start to worry about, well, is it an asset? Is it money? Is it no? And now we're talking about, no, this is a store of wealth, store of value, a source of stability. Okay. A source of really, the next, next question is with the recent correlation between the major cryptos and the market over inflation fears in the US, is the thesis of Bitcoin is an inflation hedge now broken? That's the fourth question that came in on Twitter. Yeah, no, no, I think that people that are fixated upon short-term trading, you know, come to all sorts of random conclusions. But if you look out over five years, you can see Bitcoin's been a great inflation hedge over five years. If you look at it over 10 years, it's been a tremendous inflation hedge. And, you know, if you're if you really understand inflation, most people talk about inflation, don't even understand inflation. Inflation's not even CPI. Inflation is the rate at which the money supply is expanding. And the money supply is expanding much faster. So if you want an inflation hedge, you have to have a scarce asset that's going to hold its value over a decade to 100 years. And you have to measure it over a decade to 100 years. And you have to have a fundamental reason to believe that the asset is going to hold its value 10, 20, 30, 40 years out. So it's 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 pretty clear that Bitcoin is the most durable, highest integrity asset that you could hold, right? Your, your other choice is, you know, again, long-dated property, but properties themselves aren't truly scarce and they have a huge maintenance cost. So property is an inferior inflation hedge to a, a, a synthetic non-sovereign store of value. Everything else is like, you're not going to find any perfect asset which won't ever go up or down in value that will be uh, inflation edge over 100 years. That's just not going to happen. Mike, can I ask you finally, because you've been giving us a lot of your time and I'm, I'm really delighted, just in a very personal case, right? You know, Bitcoin is is a ride, okay, in the short term, right? And we've seen that's got to 60,000 and up to 30,000. What is, as a very large owner of Bitcoin, when you see these interday movements, these interweek movements, these intermonth movements, I mean, how do you deal with that in your head? Because people, you know, this is a huge spike up in your personal wealth, then a spike down, then a spike up. Or do you just not mark to market at all? Do you just say, look, I've got a 10-year view, a 20-year view, and I'm really happy with that? Yeah. If you're gonna if you're gonna buy any 
long dated asset, but especially if you're going to buy property and if you're going to buy Bitcoin, if you wouldn't hold it for a decade, you shouldn't hold it for 10 minutes, right? If, if you want something that's going to hold its value over 10 minutes, 10 hours, 10 days, or 10 weeks, or 10 months, you should just hold currency, right? Now, yeah, and buy you're 100% 100 certain to lose all your wealth over 100 years, but you're reasonably certain to hold value. And with the dollar, right, you're 100% certain to lose 20% of your wealth over a year. But with the peso, you're 100% certain to lose 60% of your wealth over a year. So you got to figure out what do you need in the near term? And then what do you want for the long term? And everything in the middle is an investment. Like, you know, you can invest in companies and stocks and in other forms of property. They all have their own risk. I think that um, Bitcoin is a long dated savings technology. You shouldn't buy it until you understand it. If you don't understand it, you go to yeah. hope.com. We have courses on it and books on it. Read them until you understand it. Once you understand it, ask yourself the question, what money do I want to leave for my grandchildren and take that portion of your portfolio, you know, and buy Bitcoin. And if, you, if you're not totally sure on Bitcoin, take that portion of your portfolio and construct the highest quality portfolio of property high quality, scarce, desirable assets that someone with money 30 years from now will want. And you, you kind of have to figure out what that is. If you live in the Western world, the cost of not figuring out is 20% of your wealth every year right now. Sure. If you live in the developing world, the cost of not figuring out is 40, 50, 60, 70% of your wealth per year. So there is a cost to doing nothing. And the cost is the monetary inflation rate. Which, and so which you say is, is not ticking. the CPI, it's actually the underlying money supply. It's the monetary base. And as that's expanding by 20% per year, then you've got a problem. You know, the Argentine peso used to trade one to the dollar. It was one peso to the dollar. I know, in the it's late 1990s, that's not that long ago. The, the cost the cost to not figure it out in 20 years is 99.5% of your wealth. That's the cost. Michael Saylor, I think we will leave it there on that definitive conclusion. This has been wonderful. I hope you've enjoyed your first outing on Irish podcast. <laughs> You're going to come back. Yeah, thanks for having me, Dave. Cheers, Michael. Take care, man. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. 
But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. That was really interesting. And of course, you know, the big revelation for me, and it's the first time I've ever heard any of the crypto enthusiasts say, is that cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, is not actually a currency. And never will be a currency. Yeah. And, 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 and him having said that makes an awful lot more sense. So, so Bitcoin is a property. It's an investment asset. It's a digital commodity. That's what, and that digital commodity is a long, very, very long-term inflation hedge, if you believe it. But what you have to believe then is that this will be the only digital commodity. There won't be another one invented. There won't be a better one invented because commodities need to yield something. They need to have some income in order to validate their yeah. valuation, right? And what he's saying is that all that we need to appreciate is that over time, currencies devalue and property, as people understand, is cumbersome. And this is a new property. Yeah, I mean, it, it struck me, what I've learned from that is that, and apart from all the physics and the Stephen Hawking thermodynamics and space and time and all that kind of stuff, it seems to be essentially boiled down to hoarding wealth for people who have it. Yes, exactly. And you know, the problem with, one of the problems with that is, and that's exactly what it is, is if you have you know, a million dollars, or if you have... A billion dollars? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's like, so hoarding wealth for people who already have it. Now, what really annoys people in terms of inequality, there's two things annoy people in terms of inequality. One is the contrast between what you have and what the other person has. So it's not your absolute level. It's your level of income or wealth compared to other people. That's what annoys you. That's the first thing. But the second thing, and it's a very pivotal, pivotal comprehension of inequality... What really pisses people off is the notion that inequality is permanent, that if you are rich, it's the idea of inheritance, right? Yeah. That if you are in a society where the rich can be seen to get poor, as well as the poor can be seen to get rich, so people can move up, yeah. but critically, people also have to move down. Yeah. Then there is a sense that, okay, the system is slightly not fair, but at least I can understand it because the rich can actually lose their pedestal, yeah. right? But if you're going to inculcate and entomb inequality, and that's the whole purpose, so rich people can pass it on to their, you know, dullard little fucking Lord Fauntleroy's <laughs> grandson. Like, no, but you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. That's I do. what pisses people off. Yeah. You know, and, and I think that there is a lot of things revealed in that conversation. Yeah, but do you know what, Mac? Uh, just today, I was reading on Sky News that you know the way Bitcoin cryptocurrencies are incorruptible, uncorruptible. Yes, uh, allegedly. Allegedly, and you know, and you can't steal them and and all that kind of stuff. Apparently, North Korea have been funding their whole missile program through robbed cryptocurrencies. Of, I don't I believe you. Somewhere Probably between more. fifty million to four hundred million that they've robbed. 
<laughs> As they say down the country, them's the bios, those North Korean fellas. <laughs> them's the bios. They sure are. No, no, it is fascinating. But then let's go back to this idea of money, John. You know, over the last year or two, there's been two, we've been grappling with two kind of extreme ideas of money. One is the MMT idea, yeah, which is that there is no real cap on how much money can be printed or that cap is inflation, but ultimately the deficits don't matter because in actual fact, money is created and then tax is taken out of that. That's one side, mm. okay? So you print money when you can, where you can, and you fix the economy that way. That's one side. Mm. The other side is the Bitcoiners where you don't print anything, right? So one is soft money, one is hard money. Yeah. And usually, John, maybe the truth is somewhere in the middle. It's rarely... The truth is rarely seen in the extremes. It's usually, and I always come back to it, you know, economics is about biology, not about physics, and it's certainly not about engineering. It's about messiness. It's about biology. It's about evolution. It's about human nature. It's always in flux. You can't superimpose upon an economy a rigidity that has its very basis in engineering when what you're actually looking for is biology. Just a quick message. Listen, thank you so much to all our Patreons. We couldn't do this without your support. And if you fancy supporting us and getting all sorts of fantastic gear, economic courses, tutorials, reading lists, all that jazz, follow us on Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium.